0: I'm just working my way up the side of a hill to a viewpoint that Alan Watson Featherston showed me a few years ago. Now, I keep falling over. It's a lot steeper than I remember. Well, probably the more likely thing is I'm less fit than I remember. I'm going to work my way up through the bracken. But if I remember correctly, it is one of the best viewpoints down the whole of the Glen. I'm in the North West Highlands of Scotland, just an hour or so away from my home in the Cairngorms National Park. I'm here to meet the team from Trees for Life, a rewilding charity who have been working on bringing back the Caledonian forest for 30 years on their 10,000 acre estate, Dundregan, and here in Glenafric. Wow, <laughs> definitely worth it. Looking out across Loch Benavine, These wooded islands are just beautiful. They really give you an insight into what most of Scotland could look like, given the chance. Whilst many visitors come to Scotland for romantic notions of wildness, the truth is, ecologically speaking, we're a massively nature-depleted nation. The Caledonian Forest, Scotland's native pinewoods, once stretched over much of the land, but has now dwindled to just a handful of sites. The remaining trees are ageing, and without help, they will struggle to reproduce and disperse, leaving only isolated fragments across the landscape. So where have they gone? Why haven't they come back? And how do you go about regrowing a forest lost from the memory of modern day Scotland? I'm James Shooter, host of the Rewild podcast, and this is Afric Highlands. Hi Steve. Hi, right? How are you?
1: Yeah, not too bad. Who's this? This is Mateo. <laughs> Hello Mateo.
0: How are you?
1: Hello. Yeah, that looks good to eat, doesn't it? Mm, he it's a fairy microphone. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I can believe that. How'd you get on at Glen Africa? Yeah. Steve
0: Micklewright is the CEO of Trees for Life. And I'm meeting him and Mateo the microphone-sniffing greyhound at Dundragon. It's a lovely time of year in the Highlands, the crossover between late summer and early autumn. There's still flashes of pink and purple carpeting the forest floor as the flowering heather comes to a close, and the tips of the birch trees are just starting to get hints of gold. Alan Watson Featherstone is the inspirational guy that started Trees for Life in the 1990s. I was doing some filming with him a few years back, and he recalled to the TV crew how he set up the charity. Whilst looking out of the dying forest for the first time he remembered thinking somebody should be saving it. Eventually it dawned on him maybe that somebody was him and so he did. Along with some early volunteers he set about planting trees in fenced off enclosures.
1: And then over the 30 years since we've existed we've diversified from tree planting to growing trees naturally, natural regeneration, to restoring pine woods, to rewilding, to thinking about the reintroductions of beaver and lynx, which should be part of the forest ecosystem, to then thinking that once you have rewilding working, actually that benefits people and communities and and the economy as well. So we've really kind of branched out with this one idea of restoring a forest to rewilding the highlands and getting people back into the landscape.
0: Steve's always worked in nature conservation, You can tell he's passionate and just wants to get on with the job. Prior to moving to Scotland six years ago, he was working in Malta, trying to stop the illegal killing of birds there. A highly stressful role with hard-won rewards.
1: Yeah, quite a a full-on kind of life of conservation really, and now rewilding's the thing, and I think rewilding is really positive. You know, compared to some of the campaigns I've done, this is actually entirely positive.
0: But why does Scotland need rewilding? On the face of it, it's got a lot of wild land. Vast expanses of rolling hills, rugged mountains and sweeping vistas. It's got sparkling locks and winding rivers. Lots of people come here to enjoy the great outdoors. A study in 2021 showed that Scotland ranked a desperately bad 212th out of 240 countries and territories, which were measured for their biodiversity intactness. Essentially, how much nature we have left. 212. How have we got here? As the climate stabilised after the last ice age, woodland took over much of Scotland's landscapes, with birch and Scots pine dominating the map. The wildlife that rely on those trees thrived, and wolves, bears, lynx and beaver all walked this land. As humans began to clear the trees to develop agricultural land, to build ships and homes, the Caledonian forest dwindled to just 2% of its former glory, and with it, many of the species that relied upon it became extinct, or their numbers were massively depleted. That's where we've got to today. An ecologically impoverished landscape, not functioning as well as it could be
1: but that's not how it should be it should be this patchwork and yes there should be heather moorland but there should also be this forest and the peatlands as well so what you come to in scotland is a very managed landscape and the landscape has been managed for generations now for sport so in this part of the highlands it's for deer stalking so deer, um, deer are kept here on, on on high numbers in order for people to come out and, and shoot them for, as for their sport and also for the venison to go into the food chain over in the cairngorms a bit bit further south of here it's predominantly grouse moors. It
0: would take a whole other episode to delve into the complexities of open hill deer stalking and driven red grouse shooting. But it's fair to say that these two pastimes, popularised by Queen Victoria in the 19th century, have led to Scotland's landscapes being shaped the way they are today. In a nutshell, people pay large sums of money to shoot deer and grouse in the highlands. That means it's worthwhile trying to keep a lot of them on your land. Red grouse thrive on moorland and so shooting estates spend a lot of time and energy making sure the heather-clad hills don't succeed into woodland, mainly through burning. Deer browse trees, and so when herd numbers soar without native predators left to keep them in check, new saplings don't stand a chance. If you couple that with just under 7 million sheep wandering around, rightly or wrongly, you start to see why this forest isn't regenerating very fast.
1: I think very few people realise that what you see in Scotland is a degraded landscape. Some people call it a wet desert because a lot of the nature that should be here isn't here because of the way we have managed the land. So people look at it and say, oh it looks wild, it looks natural, isn't it beautiful, it's got golden eagles, it must be okay. But actually it could have so much more if nature was given a chance and nature was allowed to do its own thing in, a few, in just even just a few places we start to see much quicker change than we're currently seeing.
0: Shifting baseline syndrome is a phrase coined by Daniel Pauly, a French-born marine biologist. Simply put, it's environmental amnesia. The accepted norms for the condition of the natural environment decrease over time, based on our own memories and experiences. What we consider to be a healthy environment now, our ancestors would think of as degraded. And so I'm really interested in how Trees for Life work, and what they're doing to reverse these declines.
1: So we've got sort of four or five things that we focus on the sort of areas one of is understanding rewilding so rewilding is this brand new thing really that we're just learning what it means for Scotland in particular so we're doing a lot of ecological studying try to understand what rewilding might achieve that's quite interesting because rewilding is an open-ended process you shouldn't really know what rewilding is going to do but we're trying to track what it does when we when we try to rewild a landscape what happens so we try to understand it we do some of it ourselves we, we make rewilding happen here at Dundreggan by planting trees or allowing trees to regenerate naturally, and over in Glen Affric, and of course we have the tree nursery where we grow trees as well. Also looking at bringing back beavers to Glen Affric uh, ourselves is something we want to do. So making it happen. But the big thing on top of that we're trying to do is enable others. So Affric Highlands in particular, which is 500,000 acres, about 45 different estates, if I remember rightly, lots of different landowners. We can only rewild that landscape by working with them and with the community to make it happen. So enabling is another thing we're moving on to. And then the final bit is involving people. I personally believe not a lot of points doing much without, without people benefiting, because actually if we weren't here, this would all do itself. And sure enough,
0: there's plenty of people here today at Dundragon, Trees for Life's very own estate, 10,000 acres dedicated entirely to nature's recovery.
1: And is where we practice what we preach. So this is where we demonstrate uh, how to grow rare trees in a nursery. This is where we demonstrate how if you fence off an area of land with a, a remnant of the wild forest in a ravine that it can recover.
0: Back in 2008, when the charity first took ownership, there was just one person working here, a deer stalker. There's now eight. Next year, when the pioneering rewilding centre opens, there'll be a further 15 to 20. Tree nursery staff. Education officers and people working in hospitality, not to mention a team of hard working volunteers. And yes, there's still a deer stalker too. 30 or so jobs off the back of rewilding. Because at Trees for Life, rewilding means repeopling too. In the 90s, when Alan decided he was going to do something about the dying Caledonian forest, the way to save it was to fence off an area to keep the deer out and plant trees.
1: Great, a lot of progress. Oh, nearly 2 million trees have been planted, which is brilliant. However, Actually, if you go around here and you find a little ravine, you'll find little pockets of the original wild forest, the wild trees, that should, should, have be, should be here anyway. And so what we're starting to move to is a model where, where there aren't pockets of existing natural vegetation that can self-seed and grow themselves, that's where we plant. So we're starting to think about actually, Some areas we don't plant, we fence them off to keep the deer out and we let nature come in. And we're even looking at at, um, wild cattle, introducing cattle to these areas to break up the ground a bit to give the trees, uh, the tree seeds a, a bit of open ground to be able to get started in. So not so much tree planting perhaps in the future and much more of trees growing themselves.
0: Trees growing themselves in. It certainly sounds like a sensible approach. Giving nature the chance to carry on what it's been doing for millions of years. I'm headed back to the tree nursery now to meet James Rainey, senior ecologist at the charity, and he's been leading on the Wild Trees Initiative.
2: Hello. Which tunnel are the grafts in, you know, of the pines?
1: Tunnel 6.
2: Tunnel 6. Mind if we go and take a look?
1: Yeah,
2: fine. What are you showing me? So these are... um, Basically, during the African Highlands project, I've been helping out with that a bit. Yeah. And There was a site we went to where there was... There were three old pines left from a really ancient pine wood site. You know, they were all surrounded by these big historical um, pine stumps. Only, there, were, there were only three survivors. Oh, wow. And one of them had just been ring barked by deer, even though it was an old tree. Oh, man. Which was really unfortunate. Yeah. But um, we managed to get out there just in time this year and actually take uh, cuttings off the branches and then graft them on to... Um, to exist in little pines, so we basically these are clones of some of these are clones of the tree that died, and then there's other ones that are clones what? of the other tree. Now you could do that, yeah. Wow. This is the first time we've done it grafting the pines. So, um, I've only been with James for a
0: couple of minutes, and we're already geeking out over how they've managed to save the genetics of a few aging survivors. Those clone trees will be returned to the site soon, ready prepared for the best chance of survival. I can tell I'm going to learn a lot from him.
2: Yeah, so we are in the Trees for Life uh, tree nursery, and what we're growing in the tree nurseries, uh, we specialise really in these montane plants, so we're growing a lot of montane willows, um, uh, dwarf birch, all of these species which in Scotland have become very restricted, um, and they've got such small populations in a lot of places that they struggle to spread out on their own, which is why we focus on them here at the nursery. So I nearly died one
0: time um, about four years ago trying to photograph some dwarf willow um, in the mountains <laughs> up Glenfeshie. It was beneath a bit of a, a snow line yeah. And it was melting away, and the floor just went went beneath me, and I literally fell. I say literally, I'm exaggerating, but I fell halfway down a cliff. Oh and, my god! Yeah, landed on a massive boulder, and if that boulder wasn't there, then I would have been toast. But yeah, they're in pretty stunning places. <laughs> These wee trees that are now only found clinging on to hard to reach ravines once made up a miniature forest high up in the hills called Montane Scrub, a knee height forest now almost completely missing in Scotland, but can still be found across Scandinavia. But we'll come back to that later.
2: So the Caledonian Forest is a type of forest that once covered large parts of Scotland. The bits that remain are examples of old-growth woodland. So we've got lots of really old, gnarly trees. Uh, typically Scots pines associated with the Caledonian forest, but you get lots of other species as well, species like birch and oak and so on. We know that in uh, a specific Caledonian uh, forest fragment um, called Glenloyne, we actually have a, a pine tree in there that's been dated to um, the 1400s. So that oh. tree's yeah, that tree's going on about 600 years old, which is incredible.
0: 600 years old, imagine what that tree has seen. At 400 years old, it could have still had wolves passing by. As a sprightly centenarian, possibly even a lynx. Our ancient trees are windows to the past. These aging giants, lovingly referred to as granny pines in Scotland, are completely individual. Gnarled and twisted, sculpted by the wind, they give shape and structure to the forest. But most people won't encounter such majestic beings. Our native woodland covers just 4% of Scotland. Our total woodland cover sits around 18%, meaning more than three quarters is made up of non-native forestry plantations. Of course, we need timber, but if people saw the beauty and brilliance of our native trees, surely they would demand those figures to be more equal.
2: So I think a massive thing here is actually connecting people with forests. It's getting people out to see these places a lot of our plantations in the past have been the areas that are more accessible to people they've got tracks through them they've got paths they were publicly owned and so people had access now that we've got better access rights in scotland people are starting to get out and explore some of these other woods uh, that might have been harder to get to in the past more difficult Um, and i think people getting out there seeing these places for themselves people taking photographs um, becoming more engaged that's ultimately the way to to connect with these places and to to get that message out.
0: And it's not just the trees that people connect to. These ancient Caledonian forests are refuges for all kinds of creatures. One of my prized possessions is a half-mangled cone, dropped by a crossbill from the top of a tree and caught by yours truly 40 foot below. I've enjoyed the rare sounds of Calpicalia on cool spring mornings, echoing out of the forest. I've seen red squirrels and pine martins chase about in the canopy and golden-eye ducklings leap to the ground from their tree trunk nest. Experiencing wildlife is important to so many of us and it's not just the charismatic species that call this place home.
2: We have things like the aspen hoverfly, the, the pine hoverfly as well. Um, species which really rely on lots of these old, dying or dead trees. Um, for lots of the rare species that still live in Caledonian forests are associated with uh, decaying wood. So rotten wood is a really, really important habitat for lots of things. Um, and that includes the hoverflies, it includes uh, lots of different kinds of beetles that live in in old-growth forests. Um, It also includes the things that feed on those, so things like woodpeckers, for example. Um, Old-growth forests can be really important for them. There's lots of grubs in the deadwood which they can feed on.
0: Amazing. Yeah, it sounds so rich when you uh, start talking through all the different intricate life that those support. One of my favourites is, I think, uh, uh, tree lungwort. Uh, and that's because it's it's. I mean, you'll you correct me if I'm wrong, but basically, three organisms from three different kingdoms, all working together as one, one structure. Basically,
2: I mean, that's amazing. Like fungi, bacteria, and algae. Mm. Yeah. So, so tree lungwort is a really interesting species because um, the cyanobacteria, which form part of the organism they fix nitrogen from the air and they turn it into nitrates which whenever the lungwort dies and falls off the tree then gets returned to the soil below so actually uh, longworts are like a natural fertilizer in old growth woodlands
0: i love that i can mention a random leafy lichen from the forest and james is able to reel out the ecological importance of such a species to the wider ecosystem everything is connected unfortunately that wider ecosystem is not functioning as it should when James was tasked with surveying the last remnants of the Caledonian forest, he assessed four characteristics of health and resilience. Healthy woodlands would have the ability to regenerate themselves, would be well connected, large scale, and have mobility to move out across the landscape. Sadly, James found that 70% of surveyed sites were subject to high or very high herbivore impacts. Only a handful of locations ticked all the boxes.
2: It's places like Glenfeshie, Mar Lodge, where we have this landscape scale uh, deer management, which is allowing all of these kind of um, characteristics to develop. It's allowing regeneration to happen within and outside the woodland. Uh, It's allowing these um, little patches of forest to rejoin up again, and it's allowing diverse regeneration to take place.
0: The 1700s through to the 1800s was a very turbulent time for Scotland. Wealthy landowners removed their tenants, replacing them with more profitable sheep and lots of them. By the turn of the 20th century, many of the remaining woodlands had been subject to a couple of hundred years of very heavy grazing and browsing pressure. The clearances led to the destruction of the traditional clan system here, beginning a pattern of rural depopulation that has never truly recovered to this day.
2: But as sheep numbers have declined in parts of the highlands, uh, deer have basically replaced them. So now um, deer are one of the major issues in our woods. Deer are a natural part of the ecosystem, but they're kind of current Uh, numbers in the highlands mean that they have very, very heavy impacts on these woodlands. And deer can impact woodlands in lots of different ways, but one of the main ways is by eating young trees. And whenever they feed on, uh, on young trees repeatedly, they prevent them from being able to grow up to replace trees that die. And so over time that forest starts to fall apart. And in parts of the highlands, particularly areas that are now quite remote from where people are, we see that these forests are now at an advanced stage of degradation. As deer numbers start to reduce, and the vegetation starts to grow up, they will then focus on the tastier things. So they can still suppress quite a lot of diversity in the landscape that would otherwise be able to establish. What that means is that some of our forests that are developing today, where deer numbers are being reduced a little bit but not enough, they're going to be much less diverse than they'd otherwise be.
0: That lack of diversity means the trees are less resilient to further threats, like climate change and disease.
2: Another major issue is invasive non-native species. So as I was saying earlier, a large number of our ancient woodlands in the highlands were converted into conifer plantations. While some of these ancient
0: woodland sites are now under restoration, saplings of non-native conifers from historic forestry plantations are trying to re-establish themselves, competing with native vegetation along the way. Rhododendron is a densely growing invasive shrub. It was planted up in the grounds of estates for its evergreen leaves and beautiful flowers, but it adds further misery by choking out the woodland floor. Allowing native trees to grow themselves in perhaps isn't as simple as it seemed.
2: Uh, to give a little bit of background to this, in Scotland the kind of usual way in inverted commas to restore an area is to put up a deer fence and maybe do some planting and then walk away from it, let it kind of get on with it. Um, A huge problem is that often these deer fences are breached quite early on, and so deer get inside. Whenever they have a choice of things to eat, they focus on the tastier things, so they lower the diversity of trees that are coming up. Um, And of course, the other problem with that model is that fences often only cover small patches of a woodland. Or even where the full woodland's covered, it doesn't extend far enough outside the wood to allow trees to really move through the landscape to adjust to change. So actually, our model of restoration is not delivering what we really need in the Highlands. And we need to move towards that more landscape scale approach to deer management.
0: We jump in a pickup as James wants to take me higher up on the hills above Dundragon to an area where montane scrub is regenerating. We get out above the standard tree line. And at first glance, it's just a carpet of brown. Nothing much to see here. We walk through a gate in the six foot high deer fence. And it soon becomes apparent that the dwarf trees are everywhere.
2: So we've come out to Karnakurk, which is one of my favourite places. It is a, a kind of a, a group of hills at the back of Dundragon, which is Trees for Life's um, kind of main rewilding area. And Carnacurich uh, has a big exclosure around it now, so it's been for the last few years it's been fenced uh, from deer. Scotland has lost almost all of its montane scrub. Montane scrub is the stuff where you go, you know, you're walking through your woodlands in a healthy landscape, and the trees start to become sparser at a certain altitude, and then you start seeing more kind of shrubs and stuff instead of big trees growing.
0: This missing ecosystem could be capturing carbon, slowing the flow of rainfall and snowmelt, reducing flooding on lower ground and providing vital habitat in itself. Birds like Ringoozel will thrive in this landscape. Perhaps even one day, blue throat might sing from the dwarf trees, as they do in Norway. Even our very own red grouse is a subspecies of the continental willow grouse. Surely that would thrive there too without the need for excessive management practices, like in our uplands today.
2: So some of the things that we've been thinking about is how actually in a lot of these landscapes where tree planting has taken place, there already are remnant populations of wild trees there. And often these remnant populations are either in inaccessible places like ravines or on crags, where there's lots of other diverse uh, wildlife surviving in those areas, lots of the the associated wildflowers and um, perhaps invertebrates and other things. Or those areas are woodlands that are open to very heavy um, impacts. And as a result, they're kind of on their last legs and they really, really need that attention and support. We want to redirect some of that effort from tree planting towards actually Get into these areas which are really, really threatened or these diversity hotspots that survive in the landscape and working outwards from them.
0: The best kinds of woodlands are those that put themselves together. The Wild Trees Framework will support natural regeneration of woodland by identifying the zone around the remnant seed trees and prioritising that for protection, either through substantial deer fencing or ideally wider landscape scale reductions in the herbivore populations. Outside that core area, sensitive tree planting can assist the diversity and spread of the woodland. Given the chance, these core areas will march out and claim new ground and old haunts. This especially is a kind of landscape of hope right here. Do you feel hopeful about it all?
2: Yeah, I feel really hopeful. I, I think that everything's changing in Scotland at the moment. I mean, to be working here at a time whenever the whole kind of the model for the way things are is being challenged and where we're really starting to think about how to do this restoration really well, um, it's, yeah, it's really an honour to be here at this time.
0: Trees for Life have been rewilding at Dundreggan for 15 years or so, but it's Glenafric where things first started for the charity. It's back in the car to drive an hour or so to the other side of the hill. I'm just turning onto the single track road for Glenafric. It's a very obvious transition from the landscape I've been driving through up till now. Which has mostly been sheep pasture and blocks of forestry. I'm now getting into the good stuff. Really beautiful woodland. This National Nature Reserve has been called the most spectacular glen in Scotland. Sure enough, it's one of my favorites. It hosts one of the best remaining tracts of Caledonian Forest remaining, and forms the center of Rewilding Europe's ninth core rewilding area, Afric Highlands to meet Stephanie Keel. I'm just hoping I can be on time. The sun's starting to peek through the clouds and I know how beautiful this glen is. I might have to stop for a quick picture along the way. Hi Steph. How are you?
3: I'm good. How are you? Nice to meet you. Good to meet you. Wow, look at
0: this. There you Straight
3: on. Wow. They are stunning. Oh, look at this one. This one. I don't have a picture.
0: That one is amazing.
3: Yeah.
0: I needn't have worried about getting distracted by some wild wonders on the way. I'm in good company. Steph wanders off the path halfway up to our Loch Afric viewpoint as she spots a group of bright red flyer garricks erupting out of the undergrowth, the classic fairy tale toadstool. Candy red with bright white spots. As we reach the top of the path, the view opens out. This has to be one of the best effort versus reward vistas in Scotland. Less than 10 minutes from the car park and we're encircled by rich forest, clear locks and imposing mountains. 360 degrees of loveliness. This truly is an inspirational scene. The trees are creeping up the hillsides, finally allowed to spread after centuries of suppression. This is Glen Affric, and impressive as it is, trees for life have their eyes on an even bigger prize.
3: Africa Highlands is a 30-year um, initiative with the vision to rewild not only a small area of land, but basically landscape scale. And we're looking at the area broadly between the east coast of Scotland and the west coast, starting broadly somewhere near Loch Ness at Drum the Docket, and then going all the way over to Kentail. Uh, around 200,000 hectares in total.
0: That's almost the size of Luxembourg. For Scotland, that's big.
3: So the bigger the area you can work with, the more likely you will make you will make a difference. And and
0: do you think that's maybe where we've gone wrong in the past a little bit, is, is kind of concentrating on, on nature reserves a bit too much maybe and, and putting a fence around a little bit of nature here and a little bit of nature there?
3: I, I don't think that that is necessarily wrong. I think that rewilding is something that, you know, in, in its widest sense you can do, you know, even in your own garden by right, just creating all these little pockets. But if you want to make an impact, then... I don't think it works to simply uh, concentrate on a small area.
0: Impact. That's what it's all about. But it's great to hear that we all have a role to play. And part of that role is letting go and seeing what happens. Ultimately, we've tried to manage and control nature too much in the past. Sometimes for practical reasons, sometimes just for the sake of neatness. We've all been guilty of it at some point in our lives.
3: And this is where ecosystem restoration also comes in, because that allows nature to become that again, and you know, make itself. Not us determining that this tree should be here, and this should be a bog, and this should be, there should be none of that. It should nature determine itself basically, and we stand back and let it do and go, oh wow, look at that.
0: But letting go is hard. You have to kind of sit on your hands and force yourself not to get too involved in the management of nature. This is especially challenging when you're working with over 40 land partners
3: there's a whole raft of different people and um, trying to find a point for every single one of them to engage is exactly the, the, the key question. How do you how do you actually do that? And I think what I, what I usually try to do is I try to find the, the common ground, the common interest. And for some people that may be nature, for some people it may be um, a future for their kids, for some people it may be making money right now
0: with so many people to bring together you're never going to get them all on board at once trees for life are concentrating on what they refer to as the early adopters a smaller group of land managers who were keen to get going straight away as the first success stories come to life it's hoped this will create a snowball effect gathering momentum and pulling in further partners who want to get involved
3: what happens nearly everywhere is you know you, you see what your neighbor is doing and you go Uh, what what are you doing over there? How how does that work? Who is it? Oh, it's Trees for life. Okay, right. Um, You know, and we may then, you know, if if somebody says, oh, I think my neighbor would be quite interested. Can you make the introduction? Great, thank you. And there's my, my favorite quote, an old Socrates quote, which is, you know, don't spend all your energy on fighting the old, but spend it on building the new.
0: And you know what? Socrates and Steph are right. Most people are cautious of change. Understandably so. You don't win people over by trying to force their hand. You must do this, and you can't do that. Funnily enough, most people don't like being told what to do. I know I don't. But if you can show that change can bring opportunities, suddenly that change is more appealing.
3: the The local people are at the very heart of um, of the initiative, and um, I I'm obviously very aware of the of the people saying, "Oh well, you know, you're just trying to get people out because you just want nature; there's no place for people." and I don't think that that is the right way to go about and I don't think it would work like that at all. Because people have been living in this landscape for thousands of years. There were many more people here when we had a lot more nature. Um, and now we've got you know some remnants and we've got very few people. So I do believe that having more nature will allow more people to be here.
0: Rural depopulation, like for many places across Europe, is a real issue in Scotland. Young people, devoid of opportunity in the places they grew up, are leaving for the towns and cities instead. As part of Africa Highlands, Trees for Life are developing the Changemakers Programme, a project to work with young people from local schools and involve them in protecting the nature around them by giving them the support and tools to take action themselves.
3: So Trees for Life have obviously had, um, uh, I don't know how much woodland they've created at Dundragon, a fair bit, and some of it was registered for um, woodland carbon credits. And uh, Trees for Life have sold the woodland carbon credits, or some of them um, over the past few years. and. Um, thinking about it, they decided that it would be right to give a share of the the money they've made with it to the local communities to spend on you know whatever hole needs needs filled basically. Um, And the idea for Africa Highlands is that with the landowners we're working with we will do exactly the same. So we will help them to develop um, woodland or peatland carbon credits um, but we will sell this not just as a carbon credit but as something that is you know a natural capital rewilding Bundle, if you want, and it comes um, naturally with a, a community share, basically, and that will hopefully distribute, you know, bits of money into into the local communities where it's needed and where people can then decide how do we, you know, how do we actually use this money? What do we do with it? And hopefully, it'll that'll reconnect landowners and and local communities um, in a yeah a, a bit more than they maybe are at the moment.
0: If Trees for Life gets this right, it could be game-changing for rewilding here. If ecosystem restoration can be financed by private money, bringing ecological gains and carbon sequestration, whilst bringing financial benefits to landowners and local communities, it'll be a win-win-win. Who doesn't want to see social justice rise alongside nature's recovery? This model could not only be rolled out across the Afrik highlands landscape, all 200,000 hectares of it, but far beyond. For now, the focus here in Glenafrik and the surrounding landscape is to get ecological recovery happening quickly on as much ground as possible. Showcasing those early wins will be vital for the overall success of this ambitious project. For me, Glen Affric is a symbol of hope. No matter how many times I visit, I come away feeling uplifted and optimistic. I just wish more people would experience this for themselves because if they did, I think they'd be shocked at the richness our Scottish woods can carry. It's humbling to think of what those 600 year old pine trees grew up alongside, but it's also exciting to think of what their saplings might see too. Perhaps a return to wilder surroundings. Here's hoping. Thank you so much for joining me for episode one on what will hopefully be the start of an epic adventure. Huge thanks to Steve Micklewright, James Rainey and Steph Keel of Trees for Life for taking the time to speak with me. You can find out more about their work by heading to the Afrik Highlands page on Rewilding Europe's website. The music was by the truly gifted Andrew O'Donnell of Beluga Lagoon. If you get a chance, do go and check out his full length tracks. The beautiful artwork was created by my very talented wife, Gemma Shooter, And the biggest of thanks goes to Rewilding Europe for collaborating with me on this series. This is an organisation making rewilding happen through positive action on the ground. Next month we'll be exploring one final destination in Scotland before heading on to continental Europe. I've been wanting to visit these guys for ages, so stay tuned as we dip beneath the waves with sea wilding. Catch you next time.